Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm really excited this morning to be joined by uh, someone that I really admire and who's been doing some really cool work in the last few years, Mimo Muki, who is a filmmaker and creator of I See You. Mimo, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, I just want to ask quickly before we get into our kind of big conversations about the work that you were getting up to and the film screening tonight, um, I See You is essentially a, a platform, right? So what yeah. is it? What is its purpose and what are you, why did you start it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the purpose of ICU is to uh, have a space to discuss and um, celebrate uh, cinema from Africa and the diaspora. Uh, the reason why I started it is because I did a media and comms degree. I was doing cinema studies and uh, in the four years that I was studying, we didn't watch a single film from <laughs> – Africa or the diaspora Um, and I was writing my honours and I had to do a lot of the research myself and there wasn't a lot of papers written about the stuff that I wanted to talk about so I thought that I'd start something where I could discuss the films that I like Mm. Um, and basically it was a way for me to teach myself the African film history that I didn't get at school and yeah since then I've been doing screenings and the best part of the screenings is chatting to people who had never even considered watching Mm. films from Africa. And, yeah, it's been a really awesome experience the past couple of years doing that. Yeah. And, like, the film industry in Africa and different parts of Africa, right, it's not – it's quite regional and the vibe and the flavour is quite regional. Yeah. Um, It's so vibrant. Like, Mm. there's so much. And it's also got such a long history. It's not like a fresh new Nollywood thing, which is also very legitimate and we love some Nollywood. But there is a long-standing history of film um, in Africa that has been made for, like, since films started being made in the world. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a really long history that I didn't get to know anything about until I started – trying to look for things that I could watch. And and part of the difficulty is finding those films, those older films, uh, to watch online um, or even to find them on DVD is really difficult. Luckily, um, the uni that I went to had a few of them. But even then, it's like part of the struggle, I think, in watching these films is finding them. Mm. So I also wanted to use the platform to let people know, like, what platforms these films were on, um, where they could find links and stuff. But, yeah, there's there's a really long history and the film that we're showing tonight is actually by um, Usman Sembene, who's considered the father of African cinema, mm. uh, as he was the first uh, black African to make a feature film. Um, and this is one of his more recent films. It's from the year 2000. So, yeah, we're excited to share that as well. So the first kind of – my first – introduction beyond you know the bits and pieces that I had watched in my childhood and teenagehood was through the African Film Festival which was actually started by Samira Farah who was presenting guest presenting on the rap um at the end of last year and early this year um and so she started this festival ages ago like a while ago maybe 10 years ago or so um and was screening these films that I just had never 
heard of or never seen. And I was just so unbelievably excited to see all of these films. And then after that, I realized that you could jump on YouTube and they're like, uh, there are a bunch of like short films and like longer feature films on there by different people, films by filmmakers who've passed and actors who've passed um, that are like really grainy and really, you know, whatever. But I couldn't find them anywhere but on YouTube, which is probably a bit questionable because, you know, they're probably not getting any royalties for that or anything like that. But it really does give you an insight of like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so there's this big history and big context now um, about these people's lived experience in this time, all this like creative freedom that kind of comes with, you know, making a, you know, our context of film is very Western or my context of film is very Western. So seeing how films are made on the continent, different parts of the continent has, it like blew my mind. Mm. And I guess the, the question I want to ask you is when you started watching these films, how did you feel? I thought it was really inspiring definitely to see like films that were obviously made on the fly, um, looking into them, films that were made with hardly any money um, and then getting to see lots of different regions. So I didn't know much about West Africa and a lot of the um, earlier black African films are from like Senegal and Mm. West Africa, uh, learning more about South Africa as well and just how different all of the, yeah, the different regions and how they approach filmmaking. Um, but also learning more about history because a lot of those films, when they started um, making their own cinema, they wanted to rewrite uh, the history that was written for them by um, the colonial powers. And, yeah, they they just become really political works mm. um, and really amazing artefacts of history that um, are controlled by the people who should control them. And so... We kind of fast forward now and you've been involved in some pretty cool films, one of which we I spoke to you about, you and Carlo, about mm. Blackwood, which was like one of the most beautiful films that I've seen in my life. Um, and so now as someone who is a filmmaker and is involved in that process, do you have some sort of like special appreciation? Because I, I don't know, you know, what it's like to make a film. But is there a special appreciation for the type of work that um, African filmmakers on the continent have been making? Yeah, I think because the the context is so different over there, they're making cinema and everybody there is African. Yeah. So they're not, you know, a minority or um, trying to fight that kind of system in that way. Um, they're just making stories about their lives and that's the kind of stuff that um, I want to do here um, instead of focusing on the ways in which uh, it's hard for us. Like even though that, that's important to talk about and it's important to talk about the struggles, um, I also just want to celebrate and have a look at the ways that we live mm. here. Uh, yeah. It is often the mundane things and the little tiny details in films that make them really special Mm. it's often the little bits and pieces that you can relate to and you can attach yourself to that makes a film resonate and it and it is so nice to hear that you're like yeah cool we can talk about all of that stuff but how about we just like tell our stories too and just you know it it be okay to do that um and focus on that specifically yeah like the film that I'm really excited to see that's coming soon it's like being released on Valentine's Day is like a a rom-com 
with Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah. <laughs> like, listen, I don't know about that matchup, but that's okay. I'm really excited to see it too. Yeah, I just want to see just a bit of romance. I don't want, I don't yeah. want any troubles. I just want I, some romance on Valentine's Day. <laughs> I love that for you. One thing that I want to talk with you about a little bit is um, about film criticism Mm -hmm. and about I think that about the void possibly um, in Australia when it comes to film criticism about African films or even black films and thoughtful criticism um, about these films. Have you done a bit of like film criticism yourself or engaged in that at all? Um, a little bit. So cinema studies, you sort of learn how to write um, film criticism and part of what my honours thesis was was writing about African-Australian media mm. um, and the yeah the issue that I found there was that there was no one writing about it um, because it is such a growing uh, young industry mm. um, and then the only person who was writing about it wasn't from the community. Mm. Um but in terms of film criticism, I think there is a bit of a void in terms of what people are focusing on. And that's generally like around the world, people don't give African cinema the, you know, the the view that it needs or the light that it needs um, and forget about it completely. And I think that's partly because when people are getting educated in cinema studies, um, African cinema and its history is completely forgotten. Mm. So it's... I understand that it would be hard for someone to write about um, contemporary African releases if they have no context and no history of the country, whether it's from or the film history that it sits in and maybe the particular issues that Mm. um, that film face and what it means to try and release a film in Africa. So like, for instance, um, Rafiki that came out a couple of years ago, there was all sorts of different political issues surrounding the film. Um, And I didn't get to see many people writing about it as much as I wanted to. Mm. But that's because it's quite a hard thing to tackle without that context and without that knowledge. Yeah. What are some films that are coming out that maybe are a little bit more accessible um, for people to have a look at, more contemporary films that Um, you've checked out in the last little while? I haven't seen it yet, but Atlantics mm-hmm. that came out on Netflix. Um, but otherwise I'm not particularly switched on right now as to what's coming out mm. recently. I've taken a bit of a break. I understand that. <laughs> I also took a break <laughs> and I've only been back a couple of weeks. Um, I guess I'm, I quite recently, I actually forget the name of the film, but I recently watched a um, South African film on Netflix um, about this couple and it was just this kind of big drama thing. There were This husband was a professor and there was like infidelity and it was just this, you know, really not, you know, it wasn't Tyler Perry-esque, but it was like in the same family as, you know, a you know, film that is probably not as highbrow or whatever. But it was just so fun to watch a film that was in the context of South Africa and hearing the accents and hearing the jokes and the friends and the fact that it wasn't strange that these people were just like the stars of this Netflix film and it was it was good but it wasn't amazing but that's also fine. And it was such an enjoyable experience to just kind of trash on it a little bit and and actually have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. It's amazing. So tonight, what's happening? What are we doing tonight? Are there tickets still available? Yeah, there are. Okay, cool. Um, so it's a free screening. We're doing a free screening of Fat Kine. 
which I spoke a little bit about, but it's a um, it's an amazing film from the year two thousand about Saint Benet, and it's it's basically about the the place of women in contemporary Africa, and uh, I think there's a quote that sort of reminds me of the film in that uh, to liberate Africa you must liberate women, right. and it it kind of tackles that. The Fatkine is the main character. She's an unwed uh, mother uh, in her 40s, but she's got a successful career and she's financially supporting her kids and they're really successful. They've just finished a really difficult like uh, high school diploma. Um, but she's breaking taboos and people are constantly trying to control her or rein her in or get her married and there's all sorts of different issues that are going on in terms of what relationships are like in contemporary Africa um, in terms of there's polygamy and monogamy and um, then also visually the film is really stunning in that it contrasts um, all sorts of different things about contemporary Africa so there's skyscrapers and mansions but there's also uh, beggars and women carrying water through the city and um, you know abject poverty so there's there's a lot of layers to the film it's it's going to be really interesting to have a chat with everyone afterwards mm. about what they think it's about it. It's always the best part, right? It's yeah. always the best part, especially if you've already seen it and you're like, oh, I wonder what bits people will take out of this one. I yeah. love that. Um, this is a little bit off topic. It's extremely off topic. But I just started thinking about the Oscars and thinking about um, Parasite and the fact that that film actually did quite well. Um, and I just saw a tweet the other day about, you know, the fact that in the Oscars this film did really well, Best Director, Best Picture, whatever, um, but none of the actors were nominated for acting roles. Mm. And I was thinking about what that means in the context of, of course, this Korean film, but also in the context of other international films in in big kind of award spaces like the Oscars and the BAFTAs or whatever. Um and how in many ways possibly our, you know, the actors or the individuals who are involved in, in those films might not receive the credit that they deserve. I don't know if you have engaged or thought about that discourse in any way. It's just popped into my head and I've put you on the spot. But if you have, <laughs> let me know. If not, we can, if not, we can move on. That's, a, that's an interesting thought and I think it, it shows maybe what Hollywood is about yeah. and that it probably would be incredibly difficult for international actors to, um, especially if they're not uh, from an English-speaking country, like primarily English-speaking, to go over to Africa, uh, to America and try and work there. Um, and the fact that they're not getting that kind of recognition is is quite terrible and I'm, I'm, if it continues happening, it's going to be a big problem. Yeah, especially because I feel like ha- what makes a f- – I mean, a lot of things make a film beyond the acting, but acting is really important in, in a film. And if it's going to win so many things, then I imagine that there would be recognition to the individual actors who mm. were involved in it. Um, but there wasn't. I'm sure it's got to do with Hollywood's, like, uh, obsession with celebrity and yeah, I think it would be – very strange for them to see someone that they'd never heard of nominated like in the same category as like Brad Pitt. Got it. Yeah. No, you're right. I've I've just been, I don't know, I was <laughs> chatting with some friends about it recently and I was like, 
this actually is completely illogical. It doesn't, there's, there's no way that this could possibly be real. But anyway, blah, 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 random uh, off topic. Uh, but I, the fact that I have Mimo in the room means that I can pick her brain about any and all things relating to film, even if I haven't prepped her. So that's cool. <laughs> um, so there are some spots available for tonight. Where is it happening? What time? And all of that info. So it's at Loop Bar in the city. Uh, it's starting at 6.30. We've got an introduction from the amazing filmmaker and artist Ivy Mutuku, um, which we're really excited to hear her thoughts on the film as well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you can reserve a seat on the Facebook event if you look for ICU. We're also doing it in collaboration with Afro Urban Art, uh, which has been amazing working with them and um, sharing that space with them. Cool. And before I let you go, do you have any picks besides the Issa Rae and Lakeith Stanfield one. Do you have any? Do you have your eye on any films that are coming out in the next little while that we should possibly check out or things that are out now or have come out recently? I really want to see Queen and Slim. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, is that going to come here? It will come here but not for a while. I was just in the UK and it was just premiering mm-hmm. in January. So mm-hmm. it will come out but not for a few months. Damn. Yeah. That's all right. It'll... <laughs> Everything will arrive in its own time, and Australia really is often six months late. That's for, true. For everything. <laughs> Back in the day, we used to be late for music. Albums would come out in the US like three or four weeks before they came out. Really? Yeah, yeah. Back in before streaming and stuff like that. <laughs> and you'd have to wait for the CD to come out three weeks later. So it's probably not as bad as it was. Mm. Queen and Slim, yeah. I've been thinking about it quite a bit and hoping that it will be as good as the trailer. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Mimo, <laughs> thank you so much for coming Thanks in. Thanks for having me. Hanging out. So tonight it's at Loops. Doors open at 6.30. There are some spots available. They can jump online um, on the ICU, so I-S-W-E-Y-O-U or Afro Urban Art page to find the event. Yep. And you can jump on there for tickets. Yeah. go. Yes, that's what I did. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I feel really thankful to have our next guest in here uh, with me talking about something that I've been thinking about a lot and have been chatting with lots of friends about for the last couple of weeks. Um, Ella Shee is a Melbourne-based community organiser and campaigner with a background in art, history and humanities. And she's just written a piece for Overland titled Naming the Racism That Spreads Along with Coronavirus. Um, Ella, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to be here. So before we get into this kind of conversation about coronavirus and the way that the discourse has been racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, what prompted you to write this piece? Mm, a few things. Um, I think on a basic level, it was quite confronting and you know, shocking to see the very racialized response, you know, in the media, like the Herald Sun front pages, um, you know, the comments on like social media, like Facebook articles. So I think there was that immediate, you know, reaction that this is a different response to, you know, other situations, similar situations in the past. Um, but then I gradually started seeing people, you know, commenting on the racialized element and the racism. Um, and I think, you know, they addressed it in a very 
great way, but I think there was still a missing piece in my mind where there was a lot of, you know, justification that, oh, no, we aren't like this mm -hmm. or, um, you know, actually China is like this or Wuhan is like this. Um, and I think while they're all important, uh, you know, explanations and this, it's important to get the truth, in a sense, out there, um, I think they didn't go deep enough to look at the underlying, you know, racism that is often constantly flowing through Australian society that affects different people across time. Mm. And so some of the coverage has been, you know, look how clean the, you mm. know, look how clean these people are. It's actually not that bad. It's okay. Don't be mean. You know, everyone, everyone is doing good things, everyone's healthy, it's all sanitary, it's fine, you're blowing it out of proportion. But what you're saying is that there's a little bit more to it than just, you know, defending a community um, or defending humanity of people that probably doesn't actually need to be defended because it shouldn't be put into question to begin with. Yeah, exactly. And I think the point that really like stuck with me was all the articles about the bat soup story and how yeah. it actually wasn't from China. It was actually from a Pacific Island. Um, and I don't think the people sort of dispelling that myth were trying to imply this, but it sort of does imply that, oh, well, you know, it's okay because we didn't start it. This other, like, it could have been caused by another group of right. people. So like, you know, in that case, if it had originated in, you know, in that area, would it have been okay for that group of people to face all this racism then? And I think the answer is like, of course not. Yeah. Mm. So, there, I just want to kind of touch on now the context of Sinophobia here in Australia. It is a long kind of standing history of racism towards Chinese people um, for decades, right, for a really long time in Australia. So what is the context? Yeah, well, if you look, you know, really not even really far back. If you look at our recent history, um, you know, when Chinese miners first came to Australians gold, Australia's goldfields, um, there was a lot of, you know, Sinophobia then. And part of that was around this idea of, you know, their workers competing with us. Uh, but underlying idea or premise then too was, you know, they're dirty, they live in slums, they're spreading disease, um, they're sort of tainting this, you know, beautiful like, colony that we have. Mm. Um, so it starts as far back as that. But, you know, even throughout the 20th century, this idea of yellow peril, you know, this sense that, um, you know, there are people out there who might come over here and spread smallpox or disease and sort of taint our society. Um, I don't know if many people know this, but we used to have, and similar to many other you know, com Commonwealth countries, I suppose, um, you know, laws where if you were, say, a white woman and you married a Chinese person, you would like lose your citizenship and no longer be seen as mm. an Australian citizen. I think that was the case in Canada as well. So it's not even just isolated to Australia. It's very much a global thing that's symptomatic of colonisation. Um, so this sense that, you know, you're always at risk of, you know, losing your country, losing your identity because of the other is so pervasive. Um, and then even in more recent history, you know, like with Pauline Hansen, um, growing up, this idea that we're being swamped by Asians. Yeah. It's always this idea of, you know, this plague, this oncoming thing that we can't control, that we always have to try and, you know, push back the tide of. Yeah. And so considering this context, it is not, a, a surprise or an isolated mm. incident or issue, um, the way that the coronavirus coverage and discourse has been highly racialized, right? I think it's surprising in some ways. I think for a while, um, East Asian people and Chinese people in Australia have definitely not sort of borne the brunt of racism. Um, you know, like the recent African gang crisis, you know, since 9-11, I think 
For a large part, you know, we've very much been able to occupy this model minority status out of the spotlight. But I think, you know, in recent years, um, this seems like an unrelated issue in some ways. But this idea of, you know, Chinese spies infiltrating our universities of international students, it's always this idea of, you know, us being infiltrated. And I think there's this growing anxiety around China and around Asia. So I think in some ways it was a bit, like it is quite confronting for a lot of people who thought that, I guess, you know, we were accepted or safe in Australian society. But I think once you take a step back, you say, oh, wait, this is part of a larger, you know, process that's always been happening. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. And so how has it manifested um, since the outbreak of coronavirus? Mm. Uh, Well, one example I spoke about in my piece was, you know, I had a friend who, um, it was her sister actually, uh, you know, sat down on the train, uh, this white man got on and was sort of looking around, trying to find a spot next to a non-Asian person to sit next to. Um, he sort of sat down next to her and then you know, ended up moving away. Um, and I've definitely, you know, if you look in the media now, there are so many similar stories yeah. emerging. So I think it's that sense of like a very overt racism, but mm. something that other communities have you know, been experiencing for a very long time in recent years. Um. You mentioned in your piece that coronavirus is considered a moral failure as opposed to a health issue, um, which is su- such a like an important point to make because often when people are unwell, um, we feel bad for them and we feel sad that you know people are sick or yeah, dying exactly. or whatever. Whereas in this context, they almost are blamed for being sick. There is this weird dynamic that is going on there isn't much sympathy I feel yeah exactly and even looking at a lot of uh you know the responses to the travel ban or the Australian citizens mostly you know ethnically Chinese Australian citizens on Christmas Island a lot of the comments obviously social media comments I think always bring out the worst in people but I think I've been surprised that you know comments saying things like you know well it's their fault for going to China in the first place and you know, the people visiting family have been on holidays, you know, for one or two weeks, maybe for the first time in years. Um, I mean, it doesn't really matter what the context is, but there's such a lack of empathy. Yeah. Um, and something else I spoke about in my piece was it is a bit reminiscent, I think, of the homophobia during, I guess, the AIDS yeah. you know, epidemic. Um, obviously, don't want to draw like direct comparisons. I think they're two quite different, um, I guess, struggles and scenarios. But uh, I think it demonstrates how when things like this happen to a group outside, I guess, sort of the dominant, you know, social norm of like the sort of white Australian, you know, nuclear family, we often turn it into a, oh, well, it's their fault. Um, you know, they've done something wrong. It's a moral thing. And I was thinking a bit more about this last night, but I think this idea of a moral failure also is a way of, I guess, dispelling the anxiety because the coronavirus is something that, you know, right now we can't control. But to think of it as, well, you know, I'm safe because I don't eat, you know, quote, weird food or I don't do this or I haven't been to this country, I think gives people who are anxious a sense that they can be protected from it. Mm. And then there's this flip side, right, where – we were talking a little bit off air about how there's been a lot of coverage about how this might impact the Australian economy and um, how it could be so bad for the Australian economy. And I teach um, at university and a lot of my students, particularly um, in post-grad, are Chinese international students. And there has been conversations about, you know, will we be doing classes online? Will they defer? Will they withdraw? What will happen? Then how much money will we lose? And these kind of big, broad conversations that are happening across university 
it is all over Australia. Um, and then more recently, even last night I was watching the news, there has been conversation from authorities, in, in whoever these authorities mm. are, um, telling people to avoid xenophobic behaviour towards Chinese people. And so there is these kind of mixed messages that are coming in that like if we don't let um, Chinese people into Australia or if we don't lift, if we given that we have this travel ban that's bad for the economy um, and we shouldn't be racist, but then there are people being quarantined on Christmas Island. And, like it's a, it's quite a confusing and complicated conversation that's going on. What do you make of it? Yeah, exactly. Um, it is, and in another way, it's also not surprising. Um, you know, when we were speaking earlier, I mentioned I read an article about, you know, the impact the travel ban uh, of people from China will have on you know, our tourism industry, like the stock market. Um, and I think the expression you used before was, you know, we really like Chinese money, but we don't like Chinese people. And I think that is a really apt description of what's happening right now. Um, this idea of, uh, oh, sorry, could you just remind me of the last second part? Yeah. Just what do you make of these kind of mixed messages when it comes to this is impacting our, you know, Economy oh, yeah, and also, right. yeah. Yeah, sorry, I thought it just slipped my mind. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the mixed message part is definitely true as well. Um, I think another, you know, the idea that, you know, the authorities or politicians are now telling us to not be racist or not be xenophobic, um, you know, to like not punish, you know, like local Asian businesses. Uh, it's funny because it's so contradictory to the policies that are actually being enacted where people are being quarantined, you know, in remote mining towns or on Christmas Island. Um, and I mentioned this a bit earlier, but this idea of you know Chinese spies, of Chinese international mm. students infiltrating us and spreading kind of political dissent, and um, you know that that's it, it is definitely related, you know, because you're creating this environment where people are already you know paranoid or afraid mm. or really wary of the other, and then suddenly this happens, and you're like, wait, like you know, don't don't respond like that, mm. but the rhetoric has already emerged for a very long time. Absolutely, and it's maybe sometimes people respond really quickly and don't realise how it will impact them and they're trying to kind of backtrack a little bit and say, hey, wait, 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 no, that's not what I meant. This is going to be really bad for the economy. Don't do it, don't do it, be nice. Exactly, um, yeah. Which is Which is kind of interesting when it comes to Australia, right? Um, so what has the response been from the Chinese community? And we did mention that it's not a homogenous community. There are people who um, have been here for decades and decades mm. and decades there are people who have businesses there are people who are you know don't have permanent residency or citizenship there are people who are visiting students whatever but but generally what have the different responses been from community to this um yeah i think the most immediate response is you know people want to return to their normal lives mm. um so right now i do a lot of organizing with migrant workers or people on temporary visas um, and as you said, you know, there are people who may have lived here for nearly a decade, have lives and partners here, but because they're on a temporary visa, they can't come back to the country where their mm. family, work, community is. So there's that urgency of, you know, we want to return to our normal lives. I think for a lot of perhaps, um, I'll use the word, like older generations of migrants, like there is a really deep fear and anxiety because they're likely people, you know, like my parents who have family back in China and they mm. obviously want this to be resolved in a health on like a, from a health perspective, mm. um, but you definitely appreciate the severity of the problem. Uh, but I think in a broader sense, uh, I think there is also a growing awareness within our community that, or communities, as I said, um, that this isn't just an isolated problem, you know, yeah. like once the coronavirus ends, there is always a possibility of racism targeting us again and, of course, targeting 
numerous other groups of people within society. Um, you know, it's a struggle that First Nations people in Australia always experience because of the overwhelming racism behind the colonial state. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, black youths, like a multitude of other groups of people. So I think it's this idea that we need to actually step up and show better solidarity and, you know, work in changing the structural problems behind racism, mm-hmm. behind the way we perceive the other, rather than just saying, hey, guys, you know, please don't be mean to us. Yeah. And it really kind of demonstrates that even when a community thinks maybe they have managed to detach themselves from the problems of racism in a society that is so inherently racist in many ways, it's almost impossible, like in, in the context here. And so it is, it's, it's, it must be very confronting. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, and I don't want to sort of end things on a, I guess, a bleak note, but, you know, growing up, I think a lot of Asian Australian and, you know, other, you know, children of any sort of ethnicity have always had this fear that, you know, oh, if I like bring the wrong thing to to school for lunch, someone's going to make fun of me. If mm. I say this wrong, someone's going to do this. And I think that anxiety for Chinese Australians, at least, might have gone away for a while. But mm. I think, you know, the fact that a virus breaking out somewhere in the world can trigger this response again, I think, is quite confronting. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think the consequences of our response now we felt for a really long time because there'll be a whole, perhaps not generation, but a whole, I guess, cohort of people that will have suddenly, you know, felt like, I've lived here for such a long time, but suddenly I can't return to my home. Or, mm. you know, I've been here for so long and suddenly, you know, I've been an Australian citizen, but suddenly all the sympathy towards me as you know, a fellow citizen has been retracted because of this. And I think mm. you'll have a really lasting impact um, on, I guess, you know, I guess race relations, but how a whole demographic of people view ourselves. Um, but I think that's also really powerful in the opportunity for us to, you know, really realise that our struggle is shared with many other people as well. Yeah. Ella, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your insight and for writing this really, really excellent piece. It's called Naming the Racism That Spreads Along with Coronavirus. I would highly recommend you jumping on the Overland website to find it and read it. It's informative, it is thoughtful um, and it's really important to think about things beyond the day-to-day 101 um, experiences that we all have. So thank you so much for coming in. Thanks very much for having me, Ridge. Ella She is a Melbourne-based community organiser and campaigner with a background in art, history and humanities. And like I mentioned, she's written a piece for Overland titled Naming the Racism That Spreads Along with Coronavirus. You can jump on the Overland website to find it. You're on Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.